following recording is from the Parramatta Christian Church pulpit series. These sermons are freely available at pcc.org.au. theme that we're exploring this morning. If you're visiting and you're new uh, with us, we're continuing a series that we began at the beginning of November, uh, looking at this idea of coming and adoring Jesus. And there's these two different themes where we've been looking at this idea of worship and what it means to worship God. And that's where the come and adore part comes in. And then we've been focusing more recently on Jesus and, and trying to understand and appreciate some of the unique characteristics and roles and descriptions about who Jesus is. And so this morning, I want to continue in that theme. And I want us to begin to appreciate uh, what we're going to look at this morning by thinking about Santa Claus. It's Christmas. Santa Claus has appeared at Westfield already. And uh, there are Santa caves appearing in all shopping centers everywhere. But I don't know if you've ever thought about this weird idea about Santa Claus, particularly from the song, Santa Claus is Coming to Town. And you know the words of this song. You, what's the first line? You better watch out. Like, I mean, have you ever thought about that? You better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town. And then the, it gets worse. He knows when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows when you've been good or bad. So you better be. I mean, what kind of song is that? I mean, I don't know if kids actually process that. This is the guy. He's the guy that knows. He's the guy that knows everything I've done. He's the guy that sees me when I'm sleeping, when I'm awake, if I've been good. And they want me to come and sit on his lap. How insane are my parents? It's pretty crazy. This week I read an article about prayer. And it said something interesting that got me thinking about this kind of stuff. And it said that one of the, one of the, there are two main reasons why Christians, well, there are many reasons why Christians struggle with, with prayer. But one of the more confronting reasons is that they believe that they're not good enough to come to God in prayer. That they're not worthy to come to God in prayer. That, that He would not hear them and, and listen to them. And, and that sense of guilt and shame of not feeling good enough keeps you from coming to God in prayer. Kind of like thinking about Santa Claus that way. And, and God is so much more infinite than Santa Claus. I mean, Santa Claus can only see you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake, but God knows the secret part of your heart that nobody else knows. No wonder we feel so afraid and shamed to come before God. It's because sometimes we live our lives with this kind of mental picture of scales and, and you know, the yin and yang, the good and evil kind of stuff. And, and we kind of have this picture in our mind. Anish, if you can click the image. And I want you to get this picture in your head because that's how a lot of us think. If we have a good week and we've done lots of good things and we've been good Christian people, then we feel good about the way the scales are. And we don't have a problem coming to God in prayer. And we're in full of faith and we're excited and we come to God and we love God and a whole bunch of... But if the scales are not kind of level because we've been bad Christians, whatever that means, whatever that looks like, and we've not lived up to God's 
commands and, and what we know in our heart is kind of this, this bar that we've set of God's approval and we feel like we've lived beneath that, then the scales are not tipped in our favor and we've struggled to come before God. And that's why this morning our topic is so liberating and so powerful because we're going to look at this idea of Jesus being our advocate. Jesus is our advocate. And this idea comes from a couple of places in the New Testament. One of them is in John 14, 16, where Jesus is actually talking and he uses this word, but it's actually not about himself. He talks about the Holy Spirit. But what's interesting is that Jesus says in John 14, 16, I think I have this scripture that he will send another advocate, another advocate. And so the implication is that Jesus is the first advocate. And now that on the eve of his departure, he's going to leave, that Jesus is going to send another advocate to come. Now, this word that's translated advocate is an interesting word. It's the Greek word paraclete. And if you have older translations of the Bible, you'll see that this word is translated in different ways. Counselor, helper, uh, and a lot of the newer translations use the word advocate. And the reason that happens sometimes when an English translation uses different words for a Greek word is because the Greek word is so rich and so broad that there's no one English word that does it justice. And so paraclete is this compound word coming from para, uh, the word para, which means to come alongside, to support. We use it in paramedic, paralegal. We use that word of coming alongside. And clete comes from the, the Greek. It's a noun of the verb kaleo, which means to call or to direct or to instruct. So this word paraclete or advocate is one who is called alongside to direct and to call us to action, as it were. And so Jesus is saying, I'm going to send you another, the Holy Spirit. But we won't fully appreciate the work of the Holy Spirit as our advocate unless we understand what the first advocate has done. And so I want us to go to 1 John chapter 2, where John uses this same word to talk about Jesus being the first advocate and understand and unpack the power of this title of what Jesus is to us as our advocate. 1 John chapter 2, it says this, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, here it is, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He's the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Advocate. Three things and then three, I guess, uh, applications that flow out of it. Number one, the, the whole idea of Jesus being an advocate presupposes that we need an advocate. And John tells us that in, in verse 1. He says, uh, I'm writing this to you that you will not sin. Now, that, that, that word there, the, I mean, there's several words in the New Testament for sin, but that one means to, to break or disobey the laws of God. So basically, John's saying, we're lawbreakers, each and every one of us. And he's saying, I'm writing this to you so that you will not sin, but if anybody does sin. And if you go back to chapter 1, verses 5 to 10, uh, John is addressing these two extremes that he wants Christians to avoid. On the one hand, of so entertaining sin and living in sin that we lose our distinctiveness as the people of God. And he's saying, if you're walking in the light, how can you live in the darkness? But then he goes and says, well, the other extreme is to say, I am without sin. I have no sin. And he says, if you say that, well, you're a liar and you make God out to be a liar. 
And so as Christians, we live in this middle ground of this tension between not being bound and caught up and living in sin, but also still struggling with and affected by sin. And so we, we, we need an advocate because all of us, the Bible says, are lawbreakers. And if uh, a great example of that is in Romans chapter 3. And Paul's been building this argument for the first three chapters of his letter in Romans. And he gets to this concluding point in chapter 3. And he says this, quoting from the Old Testament. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable. That's a judgment word to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight. This mic's ringing. By the works of the law, rather through the law, we become conscious of our sin. Basically, Paul's saying, no one's without excuse. And if you go to the previous part of this passage, Paul explicitly says that there's, there's no one that does good. We're all lawbreakers. When we come before the heavenly court, the divine judge, we all stand guilty condemned. We all have a case to answer. We, we all have to give an account for breaking God's law. Now again, the thing is, for some people, this idea of a, a divine court and divine justice and God being a judge is, is a little bit offensive. And, you know, they, they kind of th think about it as being, uh, you know, things that society and religious people have come up with to scare people into being good moral citizens. And there's this idea like, you know, parents use the bogeyman to get their kids to eat their spinach, that kind of stuff. You know, this, this idea of God being this divine judge is an archaic idea that's just there to intimidate and oppress and, and keep people imprisoned in fear. But any thinking human being would, would probably understand that, yeah, okay, maybe our culture define some of those right and wrong. Maybe our family upbringing has shaped our moral code and maybe our own personal preference and our personal choices kind of shape the way we view the world. Yeah, we get that. But all of us have wrestled at some point with this inner judge in our hearts when we break our own standards, whatever they might be. We, we all felt the, the prick of our conscience and the shame and the guilt and this sense of having to give an account for ourselves somehow, to someone. And again, Paul in Romans 2, he talks about this idea of the conscience. And he says that everyone, even those who've not heard about God or heard about the Bible, they have this kind of moral code that's written in their hearts. And this is what he says in Romans 2. Next one. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Their consciences also bearing witness and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. There's this idea that somehow there's this moral code or this law that's written in our hearts. And we can argue all we want that it's cultural or family-based or, or personal. But here's when we know that deep down inside, Maybe we all really believe that there is a higher moral code. Or maybe we hope that there is a higher moral code. And that's when we are wronged. When somebody wrongs us, when somebody does something that we believe is unjust or wrong, then we kind of appeal to this higher moral standard where we say, hang on, none of us, when we're wronged, example, when we're cut off on the freeway, for instance, no one says, oh, that's just their culture. That's okay. That's offending me, but I'm okay with that. No. We think, no, that's wrong. Where's the police when you need them? 
a great example of this was when we were uh, lining up to get into the fireworks at New Year's Eve a few years ago. We were at Lady Macquarie's Jail. Big mistake. Never do that again. And th- we got there and there were these zigzags of people lined up waiting to get in. Like, I mean, there must have been thousands of people there. And so we joined the queue at like 11 o'clock in the morning or something to, to get in. And we all, you know, it was hot. You know, we had the kids there. We're, we're, you know, eating sandwiches while we're standing and doing all that stuff. And then at about, I don't know, 3 o'clock or 4 o'clock, this group of guys, or actually a big group of people, kind of arrived and started doing what we all know, you know, like trying to push in, yeah, get, get, a, get a better position. And I'm, I'm here to tell you that there were people lined up from every culture, from every age group, from every strata of society, and none of them said, you know what, that's just their culture. That's just their family upbringing. That's just their personal moral code and, it, and their values. And that's okay. It, it might be different to mine, but, you know, that's okay. No. They were all kind of linking arms and, you know, saying, no, you will not come in here. And all of a sudden, all these people that were lining up became friends. And in solidarity, were trying to stop this group from breaking into the line. You see, there's something in us that we just go, no, that's wrong. And the problem is that we all stand condemned by that standard. And that's the bad news that John tells us, that we all sin. And so we all stand condemned. And that's just not bad news for us in the future when we face that divine judge. But it's also bad news for us now. Because the guilt and the condemnation and the shame still grips our heart. And it keeps us from coming to God. Because we think we're not good enough. And that's why sometimes, and you probably had these conversations with people who are not Christians, and you've been telling them about the love of God and inviting them to explore Jesus, and they'll say something like, I'm not good enough. Let me clean up my life a little bit, and then I'll come to God. Because we just feel that we're not worthy. An advocate suggests that we have a need that is beyond us, that we can't meet. The second thing John goes on to tell us is if anybody does sin, we do have an advocate with the Father. We do have an advocate. The second thing John says is that that our advocate represents us. He represents us. So the best way for us to think about the advocate is like a defense attorney. That's the best way. And a defense attorney, he's there to advise you and and, uh, give you direction and instruct you how you're going to deal with your case as it comes before the court. But the most important thing that a defense attorney does is represent you in court. He, He speaks to the powers of authority, the powers that be, on your behalf. He speaks for you. So in one sense, your advocate is you in court. And you notice the judge never talks to the defendant. The judge always talks to the attorney. And so if the attorney is articulate, you are articulate. If the attorney knows the law, you know the law. If your attorney is confident and skilled, you are confident and skilled. In one sense, as one Bible writer says, you are lost in your advocate. You are in your advocate. And he speaks for you. He represents you. And what he does is what you do. And his win is your win. His loss is your loss. You are one. And that is so powerful because what John tells us is that when we sin, what we need is not someone there necessary to hold our hand and stroke us and there, there, it's going to be okay. 
what, when, we, when, we, when we're in court, what we, what we don't need is someone saying, okay, we'll get this better next time. You'll do better next time. It's going to be okay. You won't fail the next time around. No, that's not what we need. When we're in court, what, what we don't need is saying, someone saying, oh, look, you know, we'll have someone. We can pick up the pieces. We'll, we'll rebuild your life. I'm going to be with you. I'll support you. We'll, no, what you need is a good lawyer who knows the law, who has a great reputation, who the judge knows and respects. And John says, we have one. We, we have an advocate who appears for us before the Father. And the reason Jesus represents us so powerfully is because John tells us that he's the righteous one. He's the, right, he's the only one that doesn't have a case to answer for himself. He's the only one that can come before the judge without any fear or any trepidation because there's nothing in him that the judge can condemn. He is the perfect one. And he speaks for you. And he speaks for me. And he represents us before the Father. The third thing that John tells us. See, because it's not enough for us to recognize that we, we need an advocate, that we are guilty, we stand condemned before a holy God. It's not enough for us to even appeal to Jesus to be our defense attorney, to be our advocate, and to recognize that as the righteous one, he represents us perfectly before the Father. And that he speaks for us and, and, and uh, represents us before the holy God, before the very bar that condemns us. It's not enough for this advocate to come before the, the judge and plead for mercy. And sometimes we think that, that that's what Jesus does for us. He pleads for mercy. Now, again, Hebrews, not, Hebrews talks a lot about Jesus being the high priest that intercedes for us. And as the high priest, he does ask for mercy. But as our advocate, he doesn't ask for mercy. He asks for justice. He asks God for justice. And if we can get this, this is so profound, so powerful. You see, sometimes we, we have a misunderstanding of how Jesus appears before the Father for us. L let me unpack this a little bit. We kind of think Jesus comes before the Father and says, Father, I, I come before you for Hillary. You know, I know he's a good guy. He's a pastor. He's a husband. He's a, he's a good father. And most of the time he, he gets it right. But, you know, this week he's had a shocker. He's really blown it. He's yelled at his kids. He's been mad at Dash. You know, he's been on Internet and done some bad things with some Internet sites. He's done all these. Uh, I know. I, but, God, just cut him some slack. Give him, give him a break. Give, give him another chance. You know, he'll, he'll do better. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm the Holy Spirit's with him and we're working on him. He'll do better next week. Just, just go easy on him. That, that's how we think Jesus comes before the Father. But it's not. That's not what Jesus says. When he comes before the Father as our advocate, Jesus comes and asks the Father for justice. Because in 1 John 1, 9, John tells us that, that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and what? Not merciful, just, just to forgive and cleanse. You see, even in, like, and sometimes we get this idea because we watch courtroom dramas and we see lawyers doing that all the time. They beg for leniency, right? They ask the judge to go easy to give them a light sentence. But remember, that's about sentencing. Jesus is not asking for a lighter sentence. He's asking for acquittal. And that requires a good case. Not a kind judge, not even a skilled and talented advocate, though those things are important, but a good case. Because if you have a, a, an airtight case, a solid argument, a, a foolproof case, then the judge, what, has to acquit you. 
Because the law is on your side. That's what Jesus does. He comes before the Father and he says this. Father, I come before you. I represent Hillary. He's my client. Yep, he's blown it. He's messed up this week. All the things that I said before, he's done. But Father, you need to acquit him. You need to acquit him. You, you must acquit him because his debt is paid. I, I've paid for his crime. That's what John says. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for us, but also for the sins of the whole world. So Father, you, you, you can't hold him guilty. He's not condemned. You must acquit him because I've paid for it. And the death penalty that's owing him is already paid in full. Now the law is on your side, on our side. The, the Father's law that you know, Romans says once condemned us, crippled us, beat us down, is now actually working for us. And the Father says, yes, I agree. I pronounce you free, innocent, righteous, guiltless, acquitted. Because Jesus has a case that is solid. You can't try someone for the same crime if the debt has already been paid. It's against the law. It would be unjust. So Jesus, as our advocate, comes before the Father and says, God, I ask for justice. I ask for freedom, guiltlessness, innocence, righteousness be declared over Hillary and over every other person because I have paid the price. That is the power of Jesus being our advocate. That is the, the security and the confidence that we can have because of what Jesus has done. The only question that remains is this. Do you and I trust that what Jesus has done is enough? Is it enough? Do we actually believe that what Jesus did when he died as the righteous lamb of God on that cross and he took your sin and my sin, as John says, as the atoning sacrifice, do you believe that God is pleased with that, that that was enough to pay for your debt, for your sin, for your crime, that that was sufficient to make you right before God, for God to declare you righteous? That's the question. And the reason many of us struggle with guilt and shame that separates from God, separates us from God is because we don't actually believe that it was enough. And so I want to, as I finish, kind of unpack some things for you to think about. Because I think if we really grab a hold of this, what will give us is confidence. Confidence, assurance. Three areas where we can be confident in. Number one, we can be confident on the day of judgment. I've talked to so many Christians about this tension of what would happen to me if just before I die, I sin. You probably thought about that, right? I'm crossing the street and there's a Mack truck coming out and I swear in that moment, bang, I'm taken out by a truck. No time to ask for forgiveness or repent or do anything. Will I go to heaven? Will I go to hell? We come back to the question, do you believe that it was enough? Yeah. That when Jesus said, it's finished, that it was finished. Yeah. See, and that's why John goes on in this same letter where he begins with Jesus as the advocate. In, in 1 John chapter 4, he says this, this is how love is made complete among us, 
there's a word, so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. Remember, the Father, the judge, he, he sees us righteous through our advocate. In, we're like, there is no fear in love, but perfect love, the perfect love of the advocate, the perfect Father loves us. And because of that, there, the fear has to do with punishment, and there is no fear. So the one who fears is not made perfect in love. You see, the judge has now become our Father. The judge has now become our Father. And so when we approach on that day of judgment, we approach in full confidence, in full assurance, without any fear, because we're coming before our Father. The Advocate gives us confidence to stand on that day, to approach into that courtroom so assured that we are forgiven and declared righteous. The second area where we have confidence is in coming to the throne of God. The throne that once was a throne of judgment is now a throne of grace, a throne of mercy. And so Hebrews says this in chapter 4, Let us then approach God's throne of grace, how? With confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. What was once uh, uh, something to fear and dread and, and, and shy away from is now something that we can come eagerly and say, God, I need your grace. Father, I need your mercy. The God who was against us is now for us, and we can beseech him and intercede uh, with him to move on our behalf. He is no longer opposed to us. He is now for us. And as Paul says in Romans 8, nothing can separate us, us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And this God that was once opposed to us is now for us. How will he not give us all things that we need? We can have a confidence as we come before God in prayer before the throne of grace. The last thing that we can have confidence in is in His presence, to enter His presence. John, if you can jump up. And I love this because in 1 John 3, again, John unpacks this and he says this. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in His presence. You see, the God who is the consuming fire, is now our safe place of refuge that invites us to come and dwell under the shadow of His wing. The consuming fire invites us, because of Jesus our advocate, to come and dwell in safety under His wing and His presence. If our hearts condemn us, I love this, we know that God is greater than our hearts and He knows everything. We, we should never tell ourselves that the reason I can come and feel safe in God's presence is because He doesn't really know me. He doesn't know what I've done. He doesn't know what I've thought. He doesn't know the attitudes in my heart. No. John tells us, no, He knows. He knows. He knows everything. And even though your heart might condemn you, the Father knows those very things your heart condemns you about. And He still invites you into His presence. He still invites you into His presence. J.I. Packer said this, and I stole this from Karen Pack's Facebook. She posted it this week, and I thought, how appropriate. This is what I'm speaking on. J.I. Packer said this. This is a tremendous relief in knowing that God's love to me is utterly realistic, based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst about me. 
so that no discovery now can disillusion him about me in the way I am so often disillusioned about myself and quench his determination to bless me. I'm just going to let you sit there with that for a moment. That is powerful. That's what Jesus, our advocate, does for us. He declares us righteous. And the worst about you, the worst about me, does not surprise God, doesn't embarrass Him, doesn't make Him ashamed to call us His Father. No. He sees us holy, justified, righteous in Jesus. Hebrews 10 invites us, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, and with the full assurance, confidence that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. There it is. The advocate is the one that does that. He can cleanse us from a guilty conscience because we know that we are declared righteous. Having our bodies washed with pure water. What a profound truth. We can come into His presence anytime anywhere, no matter what we've done, no matter what kind of week we've had, with that assurance that God sees me in my advocate and his case is solid. One last quote from a missionary from many, many years and he said this, Wesley Deal, the greatest privilege God gives you is the freedom to approach him at any time. Listen to this, you are not only authorized to speak to him, you are invited you are not only permitted, you are expected. God waits for you to communicate with Him. What a wonderful picture. Not like Santa Claus, but a Father who knows us more intimately than anybody else and invites us, come, come close. And so we've got a couple of minutes before the bell goes. And I want us to do that. I want us to just take a moment. And in fact, thanks, John. You know, I wanted you to just play till then, but you can stop. Because I want John to do this too. I want us to just bow our heads. I want us to close our eyes. And I want us to be with God. You know, sometimes music can distract us. Singing can distract us. And they can camouflage a whole bunch of things. But I want us to just sit and maybe come before our Heavenly Father with full assurance to rest in His presence, to open our heart to Him, to receive His love this morning, to be reminded how He sees you in Christ, for you to feel safe in His presence without guilt, shame, or condemnation. And I want this to stay with you. And that's why I left it to the end. You know how we always seem to carry in our mind scales? Well, I want to show you another scale. That's what your life looks like now in Christ. See the cross in the middle? It's broken. The other side is broken. Jesus has met all of the righteous requirements of God's law. So you don't need to try anymore to balance the scales. They will always be balanced as long as you keep trusting in Jesus. Always be balanced. So next time you wrestle with scales in your mind, I, I want you to see this one. There is no other side. 
because our righteous advocate has paid the price for us. Father, we thank you for what you've done for us in Jesus. Lord, to bring us to yourself. Lord, we don't deserve your forgiveness. We are deserving of your wrath and we stand condemned and guilty before you. But Lord, because of your great love and your mercy, you sent Jesus to be our advocate, to, to pay for our sin, to be the atoning sacrifice that paid for our penalty. And we thank you, Lord, that there is forgiveness, that there is grace extended to us in Jesus. And we thank you that he represents us before you. And Lord, pleads not for mercy, but for justice. Thank you, Lord, that we are declared righteous because of his perfect righteousness. And we can come before you in confidence and ask for grace and mercy, forgiveness, life, hope, relationship, intimacy. There is nothing that needs to separate us from you anymore, Lord. And Lord, I pray and, and I, I thank you for the Holy Spirit who is the second advocate that reminds us of the things that Jesus taught and the things that Jesus did so that we will never forget this powerful truth of what the first advocate has done. And Lord, so we pray that he would continue his ministry in our heart. Holy Spirit, that you will be our second advocate that continues to remind us and remind us and remind us so that we would not struggle and battle with a guilty conscience or with shame or, or with uh, fear, Lord, when it comes to approaching you. Lord, may our prayer life and our relationship with you grow and grow and be enriched in light of this truth of what Jesus has done for us as our advocate. Be with us, Lord, as we go. We ask for your blessing and your grace to abound to us. In Jesus' name.